I'm going to have a bit of a, a strange introduction, maybe. Um, I, I first learned about these Bible characters here in Matthew chapter 20. If you're not there, if you would make your way, chapter 20, verse 29, this little story. Uh, I, I learned about this character from a song before I ever learned about him from Scripture. As we learned how to lead singing back in Fredericktown, we used the old scarred selections. Anybody remember this one? It's not scarred. I, I always, as a kid, it looked like it. And it also looked like scared, scared selections. But it's sacred selections. It's an Ellis Crumb songbook, and it's still, as the first memory I have of ever leading singing, it didn't take, obviously, but... Uh, but anyway, I still remember, and one of the songs we always fought for on singing nights was a song about one of these two blind men. Does anybody remember what the name of the blind man was? Bartimaeus, right? Mark names him, Matthew doesn't. Matthew also says there were two people, not just one. Uh, but anyway, so Matthew zeroes in uh, on, on the, these two, but Mark zeroes in on one. And his name is Bartimaeus. Does anybody remember singing a song growing up? that had the name Bartimaeus in it. Yeah, Gary. Uh, you remember, you just don't know the title. You know what the title is? Now, that's one I've never heard of before, but leave it to Gary Buck to throw that one out at me. <laughs> it was 651 in the old sacred selection. I'm going to have Danny come up and lead this one. We've got it on slides, so you're going to be able to see it. It's called On the Jericho Road. So if you would come up, I'm going to let you have this songbook and... And I, I just, for old times' sake, just humor me for a minute, but it's also how I, I learned about this, this bland, blind man on the Jericho Road. So let's sing this together. How many remember this? How many know this? Oh, there's lots of you. Okay, never mind. Just yeah, keep going. So is this new, old, or old, new? <laughs> it's old, new. Old, new, okay. <laughs> Bartimaeus is in the second verse, ain't he? He's in the second verse. Okay. But do all three of them. All right. Now, to make this work, when your part comes along, you got to sing. <laughs> if not, there'll be a gap. <laughs> so, okay. As you travel along on the Jericho Road, does the world seem all wrong and heavy alone? Just bring it to Christ, your sins all confess. On the Jericho road, your heart he will bless. On the Jericho road, there's room for just two, no more, no less. Just Jesus and you, each burden he'll bear, each sorrow will share. There's never a care, for Jesus is there. On the Jericho road, blind Bartata must send. His life was a void, so empty and flat. But Jesus.
Jesus appeared. One word brought him sight on the Jericho road. Christ banished his night on the Jericho road. There's room for just two. No more, no less. Judge Jesus and you. Each burden he'll bear. Each sorrow he'll share. There's never a care. For Jesus is there. Oh, brother to you. This message I bring, though hope may be gone, he'll cause you to sing. At Jesus' command, sin shackles must fall on the Jericho road. You will answer his call. On the Jericho Road, there's room for just two, no more, no less, just Jesus and you, each burden he'll bear, each sorrow he'll share, there's never a for Jesus is there. Thank you for indulging in that one. That may have brought back some memories for some people. Or nightmares, I don't know. It's a... But in Matthew chapter um, 20, when this story happens, as it's closing out chapter 20, it's Passover time. One of the most significant occasions in all of uh, Israel and all these pilgrims from all over the country are making their pilgrimage back and so they're flooding the streets in the cities surrounding Jerusalem on their way there. It's a great time for someone like a blind person to beg. All these people thinking religious thoughts, getting close to God, getting close to the holy city and they can put their can out there and lots of more, a lot more money would come in than normal. But Jesus, what he's thinking is, he's about to enter the last week of his life. He's about these same people following. It's an entourage of people with um, messianic anticipation. And it's going to turn into the triumphal entry. But for right now, they're going, hitting Jericho, heading up, and it's going to be nearly totally vertical going up to Jerusalem. And he's about to carry out the events that we know as the gospel story. Uh, John Meacham, who used to edit the Newsweek magazine, is a big historian, a person well-respected scholar of history, was asked one time the most important events of history. He said, well, I can tell you the top two. Number two is World War II. Number one is the resurrection of Jesus. And he's right. It's the centerpiece for all of us. Jesus was about to involve himself in the most important event in history. And there's this huge entourage of people uh, who are following him, ready for some great things to happen, anticipating great things to uh, happen. Fever pitch is raised. 
And I can see Jesus thinking his mindset is resolutely set toward the cross and toward the resurrection about to happen in just a short amount of time. Lesser things should really fade into oblivion. The one thing on his mind was offering up the sacrifice for the sins of all the world. The most important event in your life and mine and objectively human beings. For these two guys sitting alongside the road who are blind, I can see Jesus saying, you know what, there's a much greater thing I'm preparing for and I don't have time for anything else. And when I'm like that, when I'm like that, when I'm focused on something different, I have, uh, you could call it selective listening or selective attention, but it's like my entire focus is on this one objective and I can't multitask. I'm a male, I can't do that. And so it's one thing at a time. So when I'm going to balance a checkbook or something, something like that, I want to get it done as fast as possible. I clear out everything, everybody leaves me alone, and I do this one thing. And I don't pay attention to anything else. I don't know if you men are like this, but if you don't have, and I, for some reason I don't take shopping lists with me, but if I'm supposed to go to a store or something and get something, I remember it in my head and I've got one thing on my mind, where is the next thing? And if I see you, you happen to get in line between or get in the space between me and the next item, I may walk right by you and not see you. And you think, what a stuck-up preacher he is. It's not that. If I don't go and get it right then and I stop and talk to you, I will forget why I was there. It's the truth. It's just one of those things where I'm so focused on the next thing, I don't think about anything else. And I can think Jesus, it says he had his face set toward Jerusalem in the Gospel of Luke. His mind was set. He knew the significance of what he was doing. And I could just see him going straight toward it. It's all up, up to this time. It was, my hour's not yet come. My hour's not yet come. The hour's not yet come. But now the hour is coming. And he's walking toward it. And I can see him being so focused on it that he has very little attention or time or energy for anything else. And yet, these two men have a desperate need. They're blind. They're over there begging, I'm sure. I'm sure they're begging, looking for money from these passers-by who, who come by. But, but, but here they hear. They start hearing the name Jesus being spoken by people. They start hearing and feel the anticipation. Even though they're blind, they can feel the excitement in the air. And they hear the name. And they've heard this name over and over again. And they're hopeful. They're sitting there thinking, we're never going to get this close to this man again. He will never pass this way. We've got one shot. So they pull out all the stops and they yell at the top of their lungs, Jesus, son of David. The crowd says, so just be quiet. These men are annoying to them. The crowd wants to silence them, to mute them, but they won't have it. When there is one possible time in your life when there is an absolute chance for you to get your sight, you will become a pest. You will act on your desperation. You won't worry about what anybody else thinks. You won't worry about your prestige or your reputation in the eyes of people because there's one thing that might fix it. There was a movie a few years ago called Extraordinary Measures. A man had two kids. Both of them had this rare disease no one had a cure for. And they, they found out about this man who'd been studying this particular disease all his life. And he was close to, to trying out an experimental treatment for it, but it was tremendously expensive. But what would you do if you had a couple of kids that were doomed to die, and there was one man on earth who might have the possibility to extend the hope of a possible cure, would you sell everything? 
Would you be willing to raise a fuss? Would you go to every congressman you could to try to stretch rules? Would you, would you appear even ridiculous and, and, and uh, desperate to people in order to get your kids into that trial? I think you would. And that's what these men knew they had. For just a short time, Jesus was in their sphere of opportunity. So they yell and they yell and they yell and the crowd say, be quiet, calm down. He's got too much on his mind. There's too many big things happening. You're too small. But they got Jesus' attention. Jesus was so impressed by their constant yelling for him that he actually does stop and he walks up to them and asks them an amazing question. What do you want me to do for you? The God of creation, the agent of creation, Jesus, is standing in front of these men and he says to them, what do you want me to do for you? It's quite, it's quite an interesting thing when the creator has your undivided attention or you have his. And right there he is offering them that King Solomon moment. I'm going to give you one wish. What do you want it to be? I wish we would learn to picture our prayers as when we say, Dear God, and he says, Yes, what do you want me to do for you? The creator, the one who operates the universe, looks down when we say, Dear Lord, and he says, Yes, son, what do you want me to do for you? At this moment, it's not a time for puny prayers. It's not a time to get real, you know, just kind of get traditional and rote and God guard direct and all that. It's not time for that. It's time for you to open up your mind and say, I've got this audience with the Lord. Jesus gives them a look they can't see, but his tone can be heard, and they have an opening. Yeah, he's on his way to something big and something very important, but our God, the God we serve, does multitask. The God we serve never forgets anyone who calls for him, no matter when that call comes, and he grants a wish. They could go for money. Could you imagine? They could ask for a lot, and Jesus could probably manufacture it right there. They could do that. What's interesting about prayer, it seems to me, if you are in this spot of having the undivided attention of God, what you ask for says a lot about you. Faith is shaped by what you ask for. Jesus says it over and over again that, that how we pray is a barometer of our faith. We even talked about it this morning. Puny prayers um, reflect a puny faith, and bold prayers reflect a bold prayer, and no prayer uh, represents no faith. What do you ask for? What are the things you talk to God about? Think about who you're talking to. Think about who He is and things that are in line with His character. Well, these guys don't ask for money. It would have helped them for a little while, but it would have been gone in a short time. They didn't ask for a seeing-eye dog or like a long stick to help them get around, right? They skip by all the treatment options, and they go for cure, and they say to Jesus, we want our sight. And I think Jesus feels complimented that they didn't ask for something puny. Don't go before the Lord of the universe and say, I want a few bucks when he can give you your sight. It would almost be... A slap. 
And Jesus was moved. It says he had compassion. It moved him deeply. It's a great word. He didn't feel sorry for it. He didn't have pity for it. He was moved to act like he often is when the crowds were, were harassed and helpless and he, he was compassionate and he taught them or when they were hungry and he was compassionate and they fed them or when they were sick and he was compassionate and healed them. And here, these two men dare to ask him for sight, which is a compliment to him, and they get it. And when they get it, they join the crowd and they follow him all the way to Jerusalem. The end. That's the story. It's these few little verses at the end of chapter 20. What do we get from this? I'm going to say a few things just to get from this and it's all yours. Don't let the crowd silence you from getting God's attention. There are so many ways this can happen. And I'm going to even narrow it down more. We church people, the church crowd can sometimes do this. The church people can make people become an obstacle to people getting to God rather than a conduit for it. We can do this. We can let people know in our faces, not, God doesn't have time for you and God's not going to listen to you because we, we aren't going to have time for you. We aren't going to listen to you. Like Zacchaeus when he wants to see the Lord, but the crowds think there's a tax collector who doesn't want to listen anyway. Let's crowd him out. So he goes and he climbs a tree. Why does he have to climb the tree? Because the church crowd's not real hospitable at letting him hear. We can do this. We can smokescreen people. We can let people know in our look and the way we treat them that really we kind of evaluate that you don't really want to be here and you don't belong here. So we can do this. Or maybe crowds convince you, you know what? When you hear a sermon that's really tough and it really challenges you to dig in more, the crowds can say, oh, don't worry. You're living a good life. Don't worry about following him closer. You're doing good enough. You're just fine right there. And so the crowd can become a pain reliever when a person has this angst, this inner pain that's driving them to get closer to Christ and be more obedient. And the crowd can actually be a pain reliever that says, oh, don't worry about that. You're fine where you are. Don't worry about trying to get a little closer. Don't. We can do that. Be careful about the crowds. And I'm going to say this and be very gentle and careful but truthful. Don't get all your theology and your advice from the crowds. Not even the church one. Second, I'd say give attention to what you pray for. You could compare this story to the one right before it. You have James and John's mother going up before Jesus saying, I want to ask a favor of you. I want you to give me what, you, what I asked for. And Jesus looks at her and says, what is it that you want? It's the same question that he asked the two blind men. And they ask, let one of my sons sit at your right, one at your left in your glory. I can't give you those. Those, those spots are not for me to give. They, they ruin their shot at the undivided attention, attention of Jesus by asking something so minute and so insignificant and so off focus of the nature of Christ. So when you pray tonight or in the morning, you say, dear Lord, and he looks at you and he says, what do you want from me? Ask something, ask something important, consistent with the values and the nature of the one that you're praying to. You've got God's ear. Don't waste it. Practice compassion is a third thing. Look at people and hear them. Take note of what's going on in their lives. There's a book coming out right now from Gospel Advocate, and I'm giving a hint to some of you. This needs to be a class here at Valley View. It's called Consider One Another. 
And in this book, the argument made is to be considerate, you first have to be conscious. You have to look at another person and you have to think about that person and what they mean to you and what they need from you and then provide it. You have to do some thinking about this. Jesus was a master of compassion because not only did he see a need, but he felt moved to do something about that need. And what that something is depends on knowing something about that need. Jesus was this master of compassion where to follow his steps. Another one is seize the time. Seize the time. Jesus is available to help anyone with the needs they have. He died for the sins of the whole world. And he offers this wonderful thing to every person who calls upon him. He offers spiritual healing and forgiveness to everyone who repents. But that offer won't be extended forever. He will draw his hand back and then come in person, not to save, but to judge. These two men had this small window of opportunity when the Savior of the world was passing by. And you've got a few seconds to decide, what am I going to do about him? What am I going to decide about? What am I going to ask from him? We need to do the same thing. Finally, don't waste God's blessings. What I love about Bartimaeus and his friend here is it says at the very end, Jesus and pity touched their eyes. Immediately they recovered their sight and they followed him. They became followers because of the blessing they received. That may seem like, well, duh, who wouldn't? Lots of people. Lots of people receive God's blessing and they never follow. I can't tell you the number of times I felt the frustration of this when the church would do something, would give to people or pay bills for people or, or give food to people. I remember in 2009 when the ice storm came and the church was the only place where people could stay and the church opened it and all these people came and had meals every single day and they stayed there and we thought this is a way to serve the community and we should do it regardless of the response. But wouldn't you think after that that somebody would go, I don't know what caused you to do that, but I'm impressed and I want to come learn more about you. Not a single one. The idea that blessing evangelism works, that we can just go around doing good things or, or paying people's bills and they'll, they'll respond to God, it hardly ever works. I can't remember many times where the church helped and those people, from what they learned in that help, began to follow Jesus. Let the blessing that God gives you motivate your pursuit of Him. Let it be something that causes you to go, you know what, there's nothing holding me back. He's done so much. And there's so much common grace in this world that God gives. Be careful that our blessings don't actually become an obstruction. And we'll start feeling entitlement. We'll start feeling like we deserve it because we're Americans or because we're good people. Or, and because of that, we don't really follow all that closely. If God's blessings really produced following all the time, the entire world would be following God. These two men, in this very brief account, can teach us a lot about ourselves. They have a lot to offer. We are blessed by their experience being recorded. We've received the compassion of Christ. We have His ear and we have His audience. I just wonder, do we follow as closely as we can as a result of it.
If for whatever reason you're not following as close as you, ha- you should and you could, you're coming up with excuses why you're not, this is a good time to reorient your life and respond more closely and decide I'm going to devote my life because of the blessings he's given me to following him more closely. If there's anything we can do for you to help you in that following, we would love to do so tonight as we stand and sing to encourage you.